This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. Pregnancy is the beginning of a thrilling roller coaster ride for any couple, but the journey actually begins even before the baby is conceived. And uh, as if you're a parent, you will know it's, it's lifelong after that, right? You're in it for life. Uh, but in terms of some issues uh, to be looked out for and to be taken care of, uh, long after the baby is born as well. So joining me in the studio today to discuss how to prepare for pregnancy and beyond is Dr. Go Hui Yi, consultant obstetrician and gynecologist at Park City Medical Centre. We'll be discussing how couples can start their family planning journey and what they need to know about, you know, sort of steering the next nine months together with their healthcare provider, of course, what to expect after the child is, uh, the baby is born as well. Dr. Go, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And thank you for having me. You know, you see this a lot. And I think perhaps social media has added to the pressure of um, being this perfect couple and having this perfect wedding. And I think there is sometimes so much emphasis on uh, planning this wonderful, perfect wedding uh, that we should be putting that kind of meticulous planning into preparing for a family. That's what I think that sometimes uh, we plan for a wedding more carefully than we plan for a family and for children. But um, let's uh, look at things uh, right from the beginning when a couple is thinking of starting a family. What do both men and women need to uh, take care of or do for themselves um, before they even conceive? Yeah, so I totally agree with you. We plan for everything in life, don't we? Um, the wedding, the the house that we want to buy, our careers, um, which university to go to. And, and yet, as you say, so many babies are actually accidents, which is a kind of... A Leave it up to ironic fate kind thing. of thing. Yeah. That's right, because you can't put a baby back once you have it. And as you said earlier, you have it for life. So I believe strongly that ideally all babies should be planned. So what can women and men both do? And I'm glad you included men because so often the woman is the one who is bearing the brunt of responsibility for um, getting pregnant and also carrying um, a healthy baby and producing the healthy baby. And people forget it takes two. So, I mean, general principles apply uh, of being in, say, good physical health, you know, and avoiding uh, alcohol and smoking, really important because you don't know when you will fall pregnant. So if you're not on contraception, you really want to not be drinking and not be smoking because the last thing you need is to be stressed out when the urine test is positive soon after you've had a big weekend. Um, also, certain medications um, and supplements are not advised um, in early pregnancy, and you want to avoid things like radiation. So, if you're going to have a checkup and you need an X-ray or a CT scan, and you are not on contraception, that's something to inform your doctor about. You want to be healthy generally in terms of exercise as well. Um, uh, for instance, if you we don't just talk about the first child, let's talk about second and subsequent children. If you've just had a child, your pelvic floor is probably not in great shape. You want to really strengthen that before you go on and have another child because otherwise the impact on your pelvic floor and your body will get progressively worse. Mm-hmm. Um, optimize certain medical conditions if you have them. Uh, a good example is thyroid disease, which is very common in young women. And also diabetes, because, for instance, diabetic uh, control has a direct relationship to outcome and, you know, what percentage of babies are abnormal. Mm -hmm. Um, You also want to do one test for thalassemia. Uh, 
or at least to screen whether or not you are likely to have it. And why is that? Well, thalassemia is really common and often silent. So until you do a blood test, many people don't know that they're carriers. And the implications are quite, quite significant. So if one partner has it, then really before you conceive, you want to know if the other partner is also a carrier. Um, and folic acid, really important, simple, cheap, effective, um, and well proven to prevent certain uh, abnormalities in the baby, particularly involving the brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, And then, you know, we talk about physical, but I think also emotional and relational preparation is really important. I mean, are you ready to parent? Um, is the relationship one that's actually conducive to raising a child in? And are the circumstances favorable? Finances, it's so expensive now to have a child. Um, you know, your job, is it the right time? And are there social supports? So, and I, I think I also need to say that contraception is way better than termination. So planning is way better than an unexpected stressful accident. Mm. And I want to talk about that a little bit. The planning for a baby, yeah. spacing out your pregnancies, yeah. if you have um, several children, why is that important? Not just in terms of financial circumstances, but for the health of the woman and subsequent health of the children. Yeah, so... You know, our bodies are amazing things and women even uh, in famine or war um, do bear children. And if you think about it, that's pretty remarkable. My professor in medical school used to say that the baby is the most sophisticated parasite because um, <laughs> if you get pregnant, it will siphon off all the nutrition from the mother. Um, but then Survival the mother suffers. Instinct. That's right. Mother suffers. So if, you, if you've got several children very close together, almost certainly your body will have taken quite a beating. And something as simple as anemia, you may not have enough blood. Um, you know, uh, things like your, as I mentioned earlier, pelvic floor care. Um, your muscles may not be strong enough. And that leads to long-term problems like even backache and incontinence. Um, and also, you won't be in the best condition yourself to care for children if you're fatigued and tired and anemic. So for all those reasons, I think spacing is really important. And you talked about the use of contraceptives, um, but contraceptive use is actually still very low among Malaysians. You know, um, it's really funny. Um, The two things that I always tell my patients are are not very reliable um, are withdrawal and counting the days. So, you know, then I get patients telling me all the time, oh, but you know, but it worked for nine years. Then I said, yeah, but then it didn't in the 10th. You know, so, um, so yes, it's good while it works, but it's really not very reliable for various reasons that we don't need to go into here. But, you know, I think choosing a method that is effective and safe is really important. Um, what that method is really depends on the individual. So you've got to individualize it to your own situation, your needs. Things like how long do you want to wait before you have another child? Is it a year or is it five? Things like do you have certain medical conditions that make you unable to take, for instance, the contraceptive pill? Are you a smoker? Um, then the contraceptive pill would be not advised. Mm. Um, you know, Do you like the idea of taking a pill every day? Can you take a pill every day? I have some patients who tell me they can't. Or, for instance, um, you know, do you have a latex allergy? Mm-hmm. In which case, condoms are not suitable. Um, so, and then also, is it going to be permanent? Have you had enough children and you want a convenient uh, solution that you don't have to keep thinking about? And then sterilization, whether vasectomy or female sterilization comes into play. Mm. Is this still a difficult conversation to have with um, your patients, do you find? Well, I must say that in my uh, practice, it is routine. I ask about contraception um, with every 
patient, actually. Certainly the first time I meet them, whether or not they're pregnant, by the way. So if you come in for a pap smear, I will ask you about contraception. And I also always half-jokingly tell them that if you're not on anything or not using anything, then you are planning to get pregnant. Um, so in my practice, no, I think it's, it's quite easy to talk about. But I think, interestingly, some patients find it hard to talk about with their partner. I think contraception is still largely seen as a female responsibility. Um, and I encourage all my patients to to take that responsibility seriously for themselves because in the end, they bear the brunt of the consequences. Mm. I think the hardest conversation to have is to advise a man to have a vasectomy. <laughs> uh, I bring that up with my patients you know, after they've had a few children and don't want any more. But I must say there's a lot of resistance still. <laughs> um, let's sort of start to go into the phase of, um, you know, let's say everything uh, has progressed uh, well in terms of everything that you've spoken about, ready to have a baby. Um, are there certain uh, tests other than the thalassemia screening you mentioned that couples need to undergo when like the really thinking, okay, we really want to start conceiving. Yeah. So, you know, it's become more and more common now to have young couples walk in and say, um, I want to do tests. We want to get pregnant and we want to do tests to check if we can. And I strongly discourage this. So, so let me just explain a bit more. The best way to know if you can is to try. Fertility and conceiving is such a complex thing. You know, um, you need all the right components. You need the egg, you need the sperm and the tubes and all that. But as any fertility specialist will tell you, some couples have all the right factors. So nothing's wrong based on tests, and yet they can't conceive. And then you have patients, and I've had one or two like this, and more than one or two actually, who are told that they are in early menopause and boom, they conceive naturally. So, so the human body is way more complex than mm -hmm. we make it out to be. So the short answer to that question is no, actually, apart from uh, things like checking for thalassemia, ensuring that um, if you do have medical conditions, that you check about those conditions specifically. Mm -hmm. I would say that the average general couple who has not yet started trying should just go and try. Mm -hmm. Don't think so hard. But after six months of trying, if the woman is above 35, or after 12 months of trying, if the woman is below 35, then sit down and have a conversation about where do you want to go from here? because that is the point at which you may want to consider doing more specific tests. So the routine gynecological checkup, perhaps me an ultrasound, cannot tell you if you are indeed going to be successful. What are some risks to be considered if a woman is above the age of 35 and trying to have a baby? Yeah, so, you know, 35 is this um, number, and women are made to feel that once they cross 35, you know, yeah. they're sort of yeah. old. I mean, the reality of it is that more and more women are getting pregnant in their late 30s. I have lots of patients in their 40s. Um, so all it is is statistics. So what do I mean? Well, biologically, the best time to get pregnant, the most fertile, is actually in your late teens to your late 20s. But, you know, we have to be practical here, right? Um, so what the specific risks associated with age generally are two things. One is that it just gets slightly harder to conceive. Um, by no means is it impossible, but just slightly harder. And of course, the other big thing is chromosomal disorders. Um, so Down syndrome is the most common, and that is directly correlated to a woman's age. So what do I mean by that? Well, I get people who say, I've had four healthy kids, therefore I don't need to do the Down syndrome test. The irony is that if you've had four healthy kids, you need, it to, do, you need to do the test now more than with your previous pregnancies because you are older now. So to give you an idea of perspective, if you're 25, your risk of having a Down syndrome baby is about 1 in 1,200. 
If you are 35, it's about 1 in 280. And if you are 45, it's about 1 in 30. So it's an exponential rise. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I tell all my patients who are older, it's not all doom and gloom. The majority of you will have a healthy child. But at least be aware of the risks so then you can decide about whether or not you want to do a test. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, to be emotionally prepared for yeah. what may come because the last thing you want to do That's is right. to be caught off guard Absolutely. with all the preconceived notions that we have about having a baby. That's right. Um, there are a lot of realities. That's right. Mm. You know, and I'm glad you brought that up because we talk so much about planning, as you said, everything has to be perfect. Now, that's a bit of a double-edged sword because when you tell someone, okay, plan, be in optimal health, what you are implying is that then you can guarantee an optimal outcome. But human beings are not perfect and human pregnancy is not perfect. And so lots of pregnancies do end in a suboptimal outcome, whether that be miscarriage or stillbirth or an abnormal child or an inability to conceive. And when you emphasize so much on personal responsibility for a good outcome, you are implying that actually a bad outcome is also your fault. And therefore, many women end up um, with suboptimal outcomes feeling very, very much to blame. And sometimes, no matter what everyone else says, um, it's internal. They feel it themselves and there's a lot of self-blame. And this couldn't be further from the truth because a lot of bad outcomes are actually beyond your control. Nonetheless, um, every couple wants to do the best that they can um, with the help of, you know, medicine today and good antenatal care. How can we um, just mitigate the risks as much as possible, whatever is within our control, right? So we'll go on to discuss um, what pregnancy should look like in terms of the care that you need, um, what kinds of problems and complications that you can look out for, and of course, um, recovery after the baby is born. I'm speaking today to Dr. Go Hui Yi, consultant obstetrician and gynecologist from Park City Medical Centre about preparing for pregnancy and beyond. Stay tuned to Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. In the studio with me, Dr. Go Hui Yi, consultant obstetrician and gynecologist from Park City Medical Centre. We're discussing that um, journey that many couples go through. It's known as parenting. Um, and it starts with um, planning to have a baby. It starts then with uh, conceiving the um, nine months or, or rather 40 weeks of pregnancy. And of course, after childbirth, well, you know, that's a whole other journey, I think, that um, couples will be going through for life. But um, I think there is also, um, when, when I started the show, I talked about how there's all this pressure now to have the perfect relationship, perfect wedding, perfect marriage. Um, and you know, women are expected to have the perfect pregnancy as well. And Dr. Goh has really nicely put things into perspective in terms of um, how much you can control the outcomes of your pregnancy, um, you know, and, and not for women to burden themselves with the sole responsibility that anything that happens in a pregnancy is down to her alone. Um, that's not the case. The The body goes through a lot. So let's talk about pregnancy. Um, first of all, I guess generally, uh, what should a woman expect in terms of the care that she should go for um, throughout those 40 weeks of pregnancy? Yeah, so 
Um, the first thing to say is that here in Malaysia, we have a dual system, so private and public care. And uh, so I guess, in a sense, we're addressing this question from the perspective of private care more specifically. Um, but if you are indeed having public care, that's perfectly good. Malaysia has an excellent healthcare system, actually. So I'm going to direct then the rest of my comments along the lines of private care. Um, so you should see your doctor um, as in when your doctor advises you to be seen. The intervals, you know, these facts, uh, well, they differ slightly from doctor to doctor and also from pregnancy to pregnancy. So I won't go into all those sort of factual things. Um, the purpose of seeing a doctor is really to make sure that problems are picked up early. So while there are many things you cannot actually prevent, for instance, you can't prevent having Down syndrome, but you can do certain tests to detect whether or not your risk is high. In the same way, you can't prevent, uh, well, not all the time, a child having a cleft lip, but you can pick it up and therefore make preparations for when the child is born. Um, you, you need to also do things like pick up High blood pressure. There is a condition called preeclampsia, which uh, it can be dangerous, and that's why your doctor takes the blood pressure every time you go for a checkup. So, um, early detection is really important. I think I really want to say that the important part is to find a doctor that you like and trust, um, because trust is really important. And when things don't go right, you actually need a doctor not for when things go right, but really when things go wrong. Um, so particularly in labour or during the delivery process when things can really go wrong very, very suddenly without being predictable. What you need then is someone that you trust to make the decisions that are in your best interests. So you can't be expected to manage your own care. And if you take that burden upon yourself, it will be way more stressful. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the first thing to find a doctor that you trust. Mm, that actually kind of um, goes to the first part of our conversation, isn't it? Because when you're planning to start a family, um, that is probably sort of the third person in, in the relationship. Right. That's right. Coming. So uh, you've mentioned uh, the importance of picking up um, early uh, problems like high blood pressure, for instance. And, you know, speaking of diabetes, which you yes. mentioned earlier, I know that um, deaths due to pregnancy in Malaysia, which traditionally have been, you know, kept quite low, but deaths are due to um, uh, complications because of diabetes in pregnancy is still occurring. So maybe you want to explain why. Well, okay. So I'm, we won't go into the specifics of the causes of maternal mortality. I mean, that's very complex and I don't have the statistics right in front of me. But diabetes in pregnancy is so, so common. Diabetes is like an epidemic. Um, in any one month, I think off the top of my head, I might have 30% uh, of my patients are diabetic in pregnancy. Um, you cannot know if you have diabetes in pregnancy just by doing a random blood test. Um, you cannot know it just by doing a random urine test. Um, really, the diagnosis should be made on a glucose tolerance test, which is where your body is challenged with this horrid sweet sugar drink. Mm -hmm. And then it assesses how your body responds to that kind of sugar load. And very often we see that the results are abnormal in people who seem you know, to be low risk. And diabetes is one of those things that doesn't just have an implication during pregnancy. It actually has an implication for the baby. The baby was, is more likely to have unstable sugars immediately after birth. Mm. But also, it has huge long-term implications for mum and baby. So 
up to half of women who have gestational diabetes, which is pregnancy-related diabetes, will develop full-blown regular diabetes in the following 10 years. I mean, if you think about it, that's that's huge number. And, yeah. and the offspring... And very soon Very after. soon. So that means quite a young, young age. age yeah. Exactly. And the offspring of the babies of those pregnancies are themselves at much higher risk of early onset diabetes. Also metabolic disorder. So metabolic disorder is the um, term we use for, you know, that package, high blood pressure, um, cholesterol and insulin uh, resistance diabetes. So that child is also at higher risk. Now, I always tell my patients who have gestational diabetes, it's not doom and gloom. This is like a fortune teller, but a reliable one saying to you, you are going to have this problem, but you have the power to do something about it. And so I tell them, live healthily, not just when you're pregnant, but continue those habits of eating a healthy diet and being active permanently. And that way, it's proven that you can actually delay the onset of diabetes or even put it off completely. And how you raise that child should also be modelled on the fact that you know that this child is at higher risk of developing diabetes. And Mm. so you should take your child to the park or keep them active with sports rather than being in front of a screen and and things like that. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the weight gain before we go on to some other complications. So, Because I think that's something that a lot of women are concerned about and there may be some misconceptions. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, in Malaysia, um, we're still quite conservative about uh, exercise in pregnancy and the fact that Everyone thinks you should be getting nice and fat when you're pregnant and you should be just eating, eating, eating. And when, you, and when you're pregnant, it is difficult. Some women really do want to eat more and they really do have cravings and their husbands you know, don't have the heart to say no. Um, so I tell my patients that the weight gain that you should limit yourself to, I'm not even going to say aim for because you don't have to gain that amount, but you should limit it to between 10 to 12 kilos in the whole nine months if you start off at a normal weight. Mm. Right. So that's not a blanket rule for everyone. It does depend a bit on the weight at which you start. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do you manage that? Well, I think the first thing is to be mindful that you are not supposed to eat for two. That's number one. Number two, that you are not supposed to give in to every craving for cake and ice cream. And number three, that really um, your three meals suffices, mm-hmm. maybe with a small snack in between. But the choice of food is also really important. And then exercise. So, you know, here in Malaysia, we're, we're so worried when a pregnant woman starts to exercise. It's almost like a taboo and they're horrified because you're not supposed to lift anything heavy. Yeah. You're not supposed to squat. You're not supposed to do tons of things. Um, but I have lots of patients who are, to me, role models. I have one patient who lives actually stone's throw from here. And uh, she, she had a, a goal um, of doing a thousand kilometers r- of running in that year, and then she got pregnant, and so she continued, and she finished a thousand kilometers at thirty-four weeks of pregnancy. That's almost home. Um, yes, right. I also have um, a patient who did deadlifts on the morning she delivered. I have a video. She she sent me the video and said, "Doctor Go, she's now in Norway, and uh, she said, Doctor Go, you can use this video to." you know, advocate for exercise and pregnancy. Preparing for the, the right. labours of pregnancy. That's right. So, And I have another patient um, who who did handstands. So she's this amazing um, yogi who did handstands the morning her waters broke. 
And so these are good examples of women who, yes, exercise throughout the pregnancy. Now, of course, not everyone is that fit. Yeah, I mean, and I, I want to say those are women who have been fit Correct. throughout. Correct. So mm. my rule is this. I tell all my patients at the first visit, I encourage you to be active. How active is active depends on your baseline. So if you're running 40 kilometers each time, which I, I had a patient who was, then she ran 15 at full term. Mm. But if you have never exercised, you shouldn't stay there. You should then pick up some sort of simple activity, going for a walk a few times a week, mm. swimming if you can, biking, you know, but, but move. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And also, sorry, I, could, I need to add about pelvic floor strength. Mm. I think that's really important during pregnancy as well, because that will reduce your chances of problems like incontinence afterwards. Mm. So what kind of specific exercises for pelvic floor? Yeah, I'm a real advocate for um, Pilates. Um, of course, there are other kinds. I mean, you know, lots of yoga and there are other methods. But personally, I do think Pilates is really, really good. Um, and I think particularly um, for recovery after childbirth, Pilates is ideal. Um, that's when I learned it. And um, so it is not just textbook sort of mm. theoretical knowledge, but I did find it incredibly helpful. Mm. For women for whom something like that may not either be practical yes, or accessible. That's right. Yeah, so so I do, I do um, acknowledge, of course, that the difficulty with Pilates <laughs> is that you need to find an instructor. It is not an activity that you should just learn from YouTube, um, and that's expensive and it involves time. Um, if, however, the opportunity is there and finances allow, I would strongly advise a few sessions. You don't need to do it with an instructor all the time. In fact, if you learn the correct technique, you can do it at home for 10 minutes a day when the baby is sleeping. Uh, apart from that, actually, YouTube has got lots of good stuff that's free. And if you just look up pelvic floor exercises postpartum, you'll find a whole lot of them. And I would encourage you to start there. Mm. Um, let's talk a little bit about some signs, some red flags that women need to look out for throughout pregnancy. Are there certain symptoms that uh, would indicate something is wrong? Well, in general, bleeding at any time when you're pregnant is uh, considered what you would call a red flag. So bleeding is very common in the first trimester, the first three months, um, but you certainly should present to your doctor. Um, and the vast majority go on to have healthy pregnancies, I'd like to add. Um, any sort of pain um, in the tummy. So it's common to have backache, pelvic pains. But if you feel you try and sort of womb contractions or anything that's more than just a discomfort, then that's also an indicator to, to see your doctor. And once the baby starts moving, so um, certainly from 24 weeks onwards, if you feel that the movements are reduced, that's also something that I highlight to my patients to look out for. Mm. Yeah. And uh, what about, you know, what, what would um, couples be able to do throughout pregnancy to see how their baby is developing? So your regular visits, if you go to a um, government facility, then you won't get an ultrasound every single visit, but there will be a nurse or a doctor who will then measure your, your, your womb. And, and that is a good indicator of, you know, if it's growing uh, well and also measure the heart rate. In private practice, we do do an ultrasound each time. Ultrasounds are safe. And of course, that is a much more specific way of assessing size. We will give you an estimated fetal weight each time and also look at the fluid around the baby. Um, as a, sort of a marker also of placental health. 
Um, so that's yeah, that's the way that you would know whether or not your baby is growing mm. well. And you've talked about you know tests like um, for the chromosomal yes. uh, disorders that will be done. Yes. So so there are two tests. Um, that I want to highlight, actually, because there are some very common misconceptions around them. So let's talk first about ultrasound. Um, at around 20 weeks, we do I do generally encourage a fetal anomaly scan, that's a fancy word for saying a structural scan, to look at whether or not the baby has got a structural problem, which can randomly happen in any pregnancy. So things like cleft lip that I mentioned earlier, holes in the heart and things like that. Um, why 20 weeks or so? Well, because then the baby's large enough for certain things to be seen that may be missed early on. Now, the misconception is that this is a 100% always, you know, you can see everything and if it's normal, it's normal. That's not necessarily the case. So it is user dependent and hence where you do this scan is really important. There are gynecologists who specialize in these scans and it's not just the machine that's being used. So there's this whole um, thing about 5D, 6D, you know, yeah. I don't know how many Ds. But, but <laughs> how many we, dimensions yeah, are there? <laughs> but you don't really need that fancy machine. What you need is someone who knows what they're looking at. Yeah. Even in the best of hands, we know that maybe 10, 15% sometimes of things are not picked up and can only be picked up at birth. So some things like a small hole in the heart may not be picked up. Mm. Right? But certainly the major things will be. So that's one thing that's a common misconception about ultrasound. That mm. You can see everything all the time. Mm. Another test? Yeah. So the other test for Down syndrome, um, there are uh, historically a few more tests, but the best test for, for chromosomal problems is something called NIPT. NIPT came into um, clinical medicine in, um, you know, just over 10 years ago. So a fairly recent test that has really revolutionized testing because it is more than 99% accurate, certainly for Down syndrome, with zero risk. Right Now, how does it work? So it's quite an amazing technology. You draw blood from the mum, and in the blood, there is free-floating DNA from the pregnancy. And the lab is so amazing that it can separate out that DNA and know that it's not the mum's. It's the baby's. You can even do it for twins. And so then they can analyze that and tell you about the risk of Down syndrome and other chromosomal problems. It's not 100% though. So it's above 99%, but not 100 Now, if it comes back as high risk, then you will need a diagnostic test to confirm. Um, so unfortunately, this test is expensive. And so it is not readily available to everyone. Um, and before embarking on a test like this, I always tell patients to strongly consider two things. Number one, if you're going to do the test, how will you deal with a result that is high risk? Will you do the diagnostic test, which involves a needle going into the tummy, fluid being drawn out and bearing a 1% uh, risk of miscarriage? Would you do that test knowing that you had a 1% chance of miscarriage? The second question is, by the time you know the definitive answer, you'll be about 16 weeks maybe. What would you then do? Now, I have very young patients whose risk is low who from the first visit say, I want it all done because I, I cannot accept. And then I have patients above 40 who say, I don't want it done because it makes no difference to me and I will just wait. So that's fine. But know it before you do the test mm -hmm. because otherwise then you do it, it comes back unexpectedly a certain way and, you know, it's a real cause for stress. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's what I wanted to ask. Even with the, the fetal anomaly scan, yeah. um, what, what, do, what does the couple get out of doing yes. it? Right? You don't just do it because that's it's right. there. That's right. Um, so some people think it's just to look at the features. It's not. It's at least <laughs> And then you post it on Instagram. That's right. That's right. 
Um, so a good question that people always ask me is, you know, what's the point of doing it? Can I change anything? Well, you can't. Um, whatever is formed, the organs that are formed are formed. But preparation is important, and don't underestimate preparation. Um, a good example is a patient whose baby's cleft lip I picked up and then sent on to um, someone to confirm. And for the next 20 weeks, they uh, signed up with the support group, the cleft support group. Um, they met with a surgeon that would do the corrective surgery. They bought special feeding bottles and, you know, set it all up so that when the baby was finally born, um, they were really well prepared. Mm. Um, and, of course, it helps emotionally and psychologically as well because you've had that lag time to kind of prepare yourself and your family. Compare, and maybe, maybe talk to other That's couples, right. You know. That's right. Exactly. And, and, and so then you have knowledge and with knowledge comes probably a bit more calm mm. um, compared to completely not knowing and then the baby's born and it looks like that. And the horror that accompanies it, you know, and then you're tired, you've just delivered and now you've got to look for special bottles. So I think preparation is important. Mm. There are so many um, uncertainties still, right? Uh, even if you can uh, try to mitigate it as much as possible yeah. with advances in medicine and childbirth, you know, all the things that could happen uh, and after delivery as well. We'll come back after the next break to discuss that with Dr. Go Hui Yi, consultant obstetrician and gynecologist from Park City Medical Centre. Stay tuned to Health and Living BFM 89.9. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. In the studio with me today, Dr. Go Hui Yi, consultant obstetrician and gynecologist from Park City Medical Centre. We've sort of been um, getting a condensed summary of what uh, having a baby uh, should look like in terms of preparation for starting a family, conceiving, um, what the care and the support and I suppose um, expectations should look like throughout the 40 weeks of pregnancy. And of course, all of that, uh, well, doesn't come to an end uh, in a sense, but uh, I suppose culminates in uh, the baby being born. Uh, there's a lot to talk about what comes after, of course. But um, in terms of preparing for a safe delivery, Dr. Go, what would you like to, um, I guess, again, generally um, prepare mothers and fathers for? Yeah, so the first thing I want to say is obstetrics, ironically, is more an art than a science. Mm. Um, despite us, you know, being able to grow fake ears and transplant animal organs, so much is really not known about obstetrics about pregnancy why labor starts how it starts you know we all just wait <laughs> we wait and we hope and and that's as good as we get so the first thing i think is to prepare for the best do your part as we have discussed this interview but then accept the limitations of your control so what i mean by that is that labor and childbirth really can go in so many ways. You know, the same woman having three children, the delivery can be completely different each mm -hmm. time. Yeah. There is no reproducible pattern. Yeah. There is no predictive value at all. People say, you know, I delivered my first one at 37 weeks, therefore the second will be. I say that's, that's really not <laughs> true. Um, so same thing I said earlier, choose a doctor you trust because that will be your guide, particularly in the very stressful stage usually of the actual birth. Now, 
having said all that, I think the best way is to find a doctor in a facility that you're comfortable in, that you trust, that has is adequately equipped, that goes without saying, because uh, things can go wrong very quickly in the most low risk of patients. A good example is bleeding. One of the commonest major complications of childbirth, whether by C-section or by you know normal vaginal delivery, is postpartum hemorrhage, bleeding. And this is still the reason why women die in childbirth around the world, because they cannot get access to medical care when it happens. Mm. You want a facility, again, not for when it goes well, but when it goes wrong. You know, and obstetrics is such that when it goes wrong, it goes wrong very, very quickly, mm. very, very, very badly. Mm. So the pregnant uterus can lose litres of blood in minutes, literally. It's like a tap. So you want that to be picked up early and the measures to be taken, you know, uh, immediately or death is a consequence, Mm. right? So people think, okay, I don't have any risk factors. I'm very healthy. It won't happen to me. Unfortunately, that's not true. And that's why all obstetricians are trained heavily in the management of this sort of condition. Mm. Right. I think in terms of how the birth will go, whether it will end in a normal vaginal delivery or a cesarean section, again, yes, I have so many patients who are devastated at the thought of a C-section because they are under the impression, for whatever reason, that everybody can always deliver smoothly Mm -hmm. vaginally. You know, unfortunately, this is not the case. Sometimes a cesarean section is needed. And ultimately, your aim should be healthy you, healthy baby. You want to go home with a healthy baby and you being healthy. However, that was achieved, in a sense, is secondary. Yes, we all have preferences and you should make your preferences known to your doctor. But then trust your doctor to make the best decisions in your interests. And if you do not have that trust, change your doctor. (laughs) Okay, It's in nobody's interest to be in a relationship, a doctor-patient relationship, where there isn't that mutual trust and understanding. Mm, Because the communication is key to help women also understand why there may be situations where your needs, or rather your safety and your baby's safety trump your Absolutely, Absolutely. And it will contribute a lot to your whole experience. You know, we talk about so much about positive experience. Um, I want my patients to have a positive experience, but that doesn't always mean doing exactly what they want. There's a reason why they see me. So, but, but certainly if the relationship is there, communication is there, then even if you don't get, in a sense, what you hoped for, I do believe that it will still be a positive experience. Mm. Yeah. And speaking of positive experiences, uh, even when the um, mother, father and baby leave the hospital, what's important after that? Yeah, so, you know, as I, as I mentioned to you as we were talking before the interview, so much focus is on getting pregnant. I mean, there's a whole subspecialty of fertility, right? Mm-hmm. And then on the perfect pregnancy and, and then the perfect delivery. And then once the baby pops out, it's, that's it, you're done, you're dusted, you know. And suddenly the woman ceases to exist and it's all about the baby and, and being a mother. So I think this is a hugely neglected part of the journey. Um, and I would argue, actually, really, really equally as important. So why is that? Well, once a baby is born, um, the let's talk about first maybe the physical aspects of it. Uh, you know, the woman has gained some weight usually. She's very tired. There are physical demands on her body that were never there before. And now she's responsible also for the physical needs of an infant, particularly if she's breastfeeding. So that sets the stage for her future health both in terms of, say, maybe excess weight that we already discussed, increases her chance of high blood pressure, diabetes, 
pelvic floor health, prolapse, incontinence, mm-hmm. chronic pains, right? And, and also mental health. So the, we all know, I mean, for those of us who have children, it's not easy. It's the hardest thing, actually, to take care of a young child. Yeah. And I think we still have a lot of societal expectation and self-expectation that uh, a mother needs to be a thousand percent self-sacrificing and you cease to be important because if you prioritize yourself in any way, you are then seen to be selfish. And I think that's really not very true because you can't possibly be um, an optimal mother if you yourself are not in very good condition. Yeah. And so a lot of my patients come back and they talk to me because they can't talk to anyone else. And um, they tell me how much they struggle. A lot of them have st- problems with anxiety and depression. Then also it opens up a whole conflict with family, often in-laws, particularly if you're living together, which then adds to her mental stress. Yep. And I've had women even two years, three years later, actually still bearing, um, you know, the, paying the price for that for that mental uh, stress. Yeah. Uh, a little bit about confinement first, because yeah. that is a very, very common practice. Very common. Um, I guess, uh, you know, there will be certain traditional and cultural practices that people hold fast to. But from a, from a medical perspective, you know, what are some things that really would potentially be harmful? What's okay? Yeah. Yeah, so I am totally um, not a believer in traditional confinement practices. And I think that stems largely from the fact that my mom herself didn't do it. My mom is now 75, extremely healthy. And um, she didn't do it when she had three kids. And so my sister and I never did it. Now, I do agree with certain principles like, yes, you got to eat properly. Um, you got to get as much rest as possible, although that's difficult, as we all know, mm-hmm. those of us who have children. Um, but, you know, things that are so bizarre, like you can't touch water because you, what, what what is it? Um, yeah, the wind. wind. Yeah. yeah. So this concept of wind doesn't exist in Western medicine. And the idea I've had patients tell me they have to wear gloves to go to the toilet because their mothers won't let them wash their hands. Um, yes, yes, oh, I know. That's um, extreme. That is very extreme. And then also they can't use normal water to wash the wound um, because their bodies are not supposed to touch water, and then you end up with an infection. Um, so I find that really bizarre. Or that you can only drink red dates. Water, you can't drink normal water. Um, And you can't have fruit or vegetables. Again, I guess wind, right? Um, So then you end up constipated and hemorrhoids. So you can see where um, tradition is one thing, but where it would clash with your actual health. Absolutely. So I always tell my patients to just blame me and to tell their mothers or mothers-in-law, confinement ladies, that their doctor says, no, they have to eat vegetables, drink plain water, and definitely have a shower. And wash your hair. And wash your hair. I mean, you know, after con- when you've delivered, you're sweaty, you're breastfeeding, it's all horrible, you have to shower. It does a lot for mental health to be clean. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and then things like you can't stand up when you drink water, uh, you can't climb stairs, you can't uh, lift anything heavy, uh, all because your womb will fall out. So... Rest assured, our our wombs are a lot more robust Mm -hmm. and um, it will not fall out. Um, But is there some measure of truth to, you know, taking that one month to sort of take it easy before you start doing things like exercise again? Yes. So I think that's just common sense and, and, you know... um, Uh, If you've got a wound, so if you've delivered and have either an episiotomy or stitches below or a C-section wound, then yes, you need some time for it to heal completely. So I usually tell patients um, with a a wound down there, 
after a month, certainly you can start or six weeks is safe. Six weeks is the duration that we say the body takes to go back to how it was previously. And after C-section, I tell my patients at six weeks, you can actually start. Of course, you don't start by jumping straight into CrossFit. But, you know, certainly gradual activity is absolutely fine. Mm. So coming back then to the mother's well-being uh, after she's had the baby and, you know, having a baby, taking care of a newborn um, and beyond, so much of it, it is not just the actual care, but the expectations placed on us. There are so many self-doubts because you read so much, you are told so much. And if you don't follow it to a T, you think you're damaging your baby. That's right. You're a substandard mother and your poor child is going to suffer these long-term effects and need therapy. (laughs) So so I I guess what I want to maybe try and wrap up with is um, number one, can that relationship with the healthcare provider continue so that she feels like she has somebody to talk to and get guidance? But also, that everyone around her needs to be in on this, right? Yeah, I, uh, what's your message to everyone around the mother to support her as the child is growing up? Yeah. Uh, so yes, first first aspect of that, the healthcare provider, I think it's, it's really important. And um, so that's why when I bring my patients back after delivery, I always ask them not just about the wound, and peeing and all that, but really how you're doing. Um, and I think just talking to someone about it and then me telling them that it's normal does go a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, they go home and then they have their husband or their partner and their mother-in-law and mother and everybody else. So I think, I think everyone should take a step back and know that no mother tries to damage their child. Every, almost all, virtually, mothers love their child, want the best, and they are doing their best. Mm-hmm. Right? So judgment is not helpful. Yeah. Opinion should be reserved unless asked for generally. And when given, I think should be given kindly. Um, and in the end, husbands, I tell, I tell my patients' husbands, if there is any conflict between someone else's opinion and your wife's opinion about the child, it is her child. So her opinion stands. And it would be best if the partner would be able to support that because one of the most triggering um, factors is when the partner is not on her side. I've had many patients find that to be the worst part of it all because Mm -hmm. this is their baby, but now she's isolated even by the father of her child. Um, So I think this is really important. And one more thing I want to say to partners out there is that you want your wife to return to what she used to be, right? I mean, I I can't think of any man who doesn't want his wife to look similar to what she used to be or be happy. Well, then do your part. Offer to take care of the baby yourself for an hour, three times a week or something so that she can then go off and leave the house and not feel guilty for taking time off on her own. You know, we expect women to go back to the way they were but yet not give them any time or resources or support to do it. Mm So I think that's where the role of the partner is important. Absolutely. You know, we've presented a very realistic view of pregnancy uh, and delivery and and after. Um, Something to um, reassure mothers that this is going to be, you know, the most difficult but also most rewarding journey of their lives. Yeah. um, So... So yes, um, after all that <laughs> I know, maybe sounds a little bit uh, <laughs> negative, but the majority of, of pregnancies will go fine. Okay. And um, in the end, it is just a start, actually. Um, so, and children are uh, remarkable in, in their ability to stress, but as well as to bring, to bring joy. So absolutely. Yes. Uh, I don't think um, people regret it. 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I think um, speaking from personal experience, uh, actually, if you can enjoy the small moments, yeah. um, when you look back on it later, you'll be like, That's oh, right. what was I stressing about? That's right. And also maybe do away with the expectation of perfection. Yeah. I think when, when that is the bar at which we aim for, then uh, you're doomed for failure, actually, because yeah. it's just impossible that anything goes perfectly. Yeah. Just just yeah. enjoy it, I would That's say. Right. Thank you so much. I've been speaking to Dr. Go Hui Yi, consultant obstetrician and gynecologist from Park City Medical Center. This has been Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.